The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. As we turn our minds toward the cross this morning, being Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, it's helpful and beneficial. God in His graciousness and providence has given us a day for us to focus and recenter because inevitably we, we meet every Sunday as a commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but unfortunately we get in the routine of things and we don't focus and we don't recenter and just the nature of our, our carnal man and our, our sinful nature and the Lord has given us something to, to recenter and to, to lift our gaze. Because I'll tell you if, you, if you just look on all the cares and the troubles of this world, if you live life horizontally, if you look at only the things around you, there's going to be nothing but turmoil and fear and anxiety. We have to lift our gaze. And what a blessing, what a blessing that we have the privilege of lifting our gaze this morning. Colossians chapter 3 and in verse 1, If ye they be risen with Christ, and we are risen with Christ, we, we were represented in the body of Jesus Christ in his death, and now we have his imputed righteousness, and we've been risen with Christ. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things beneath. And the reason that we have the hope of the resurrection, the reason that we believe that if our bodies are sick right now and things hurt and our bodies are not what they want to be, praise God for the hope that we have of the resurrection that we're going to come up as glorified bodies. And if we're alive and remain, we're going to be translated and we're going to see the Lord face to face. But the reason we have the hope of the resurrection that we can look at all of the afflictions of this world and in light of the resurrection and in light of eternity and in light of heaven, we can look at them and say it's but a light affliction. But a light affliction only when, only when we are looking at the cares and troubles of this world through the lens of the resurrection, okay? Because if, you, if you're just looking at everything around you and your eyes are not setting your affection on things above and you're not looking vertically, if you look too much horizontally, there's going to be a lot to quench your joy in Jesus Christ. But the reason that we have a hope of the resurrection is because of Jesus' resurrection, okay? I want to make sure that we understand that. I mean, I, I cannot understate, overstate the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the only reason that Christianity is true and every other religion is a false religion, okay? The reason why, not just the reason why we have the hope of heaven, the reason why we have the hope of the resurrection at the last day, but the reason why everything that we have based our lives upon, because you need to seek first the kingdom of God. Christ needs to be first and foremost in your life, and if you do that, Everything you have based your life upon hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, okay? I cannot emphasize that enough. And we need to be reaffirmed <clears throat> in that truth this morning. Romans chapter 1, 
Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> we'll just pick up here in verse 4. Let's read verse 3 first. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. You know, he spent his entire ministry, Jesus walked around for three and a half years, saying, I am one with the Father, right? That's why the Jews wanted to kill him. Now, the, the, there were multiple reasons they wanted to kill him. Uh, they were taking away his power, uh, taking away their, their authority and their influence to, to control other people and put them in bondage. But he was saying that I am one with the Father. And you know what? You either have to do one of two things with that. You either have to do what they tried to do, which was try to kill him for blasphemy, because he's either a blasphemer or he's God manifest in the flesh, and there's no, no in-between, okay? Now, these wicked, unregenerate men that were not concerned about holiness and upholding religion, they were just concerned about losing their authority, they rejected him because they had not uh, been quickened in the heart, had a hard and stony heart, and therefore they were cut to the heart instead of being pricked in the heart. But they desired to kill him. They desired to silence this man. But you only have two options in the view of Jesus Christ. You either have to accept him as a blasphemer or you have to accept him as the son of God. Okay, there's no in-between because he didn't leave you any in-between. <laughs> okay, he didn't leave you the in-between to say he's just a good man and a prophet. He didn't leave you that opportunity. He said he's God. And either he's a blasphemer or he is truly the son of God. And what was the identifying mark that proved that he was who he said he was? His resurrection from the dead. You know, not only did he say I'm the son of God, but he, he said in many different places, consistently all throughout his ministry, the son of man. It's, by the way, I was reading back through this, uh, this week. And when he said that, when he said those statements to the apostles and to other people, he didn't say the son of God will be scourged and mocked and crucified and be resurrected. He didn't say he the son of God. Every time he said the son of man, the son of man. Now he's the son of God and the son of man. But he did not say the son of God will be. But when it happened, it was evidence that he was the son of God. You see that? He didn't, he didn't go around saying the son of God will be. No, you look at what happened and you reach the conclusion that he's the son of God. He said, I am the son of man because he had to be the son of man to be the rightful representative to pay the penalty for our sins. But he went around telling people. And it's, it's funny, even his enemies knew it. Uh, they, they said, he's been telling people he's going to be out of, out of the grave in, in three days. We got to make sure we add some extra uh, military to try to protect his his." Uh, his tomb because his disciples are going to try to steal it and try to try to deceive everybody. Even his enemies, he said it so consistently that his enemies knew that he was saying that he was going to be resurrected the third day. And they, you know, of course, those beautiful texts there where they said, all right, go, go make it as sure as you can and <laughs> do the best you can. Well, obviously man can't keep the son of God in the tomb, right? <clears throat> but he said consistently that I will be mocked and scourged. I will be crucified. 
and I will be resurrected the third day. And that is the proof positive. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. In Matthew chapter 12, <clears throat> he said, that even an adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. There's only one sign that I'm going to give you. Son of man is going to be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, just like Jonah was three days and three nights in, in the whale's belly. And by my resurrection from the dead, that is the only sign that you're going to need that I am who I said I am, that I am the Son of God. And he was resurrected, and he was publicly manifested to, to prove the authenticity of his statements of who he said he was. He declared himself to be one with God and to be the Son of God, and by his resurrection, it was publicly manifest that he was the Son of God. Okay? Praise God. Praise God for the resurrection. Now, this morning, I would like to focus on one specific character uh, that we find in the Gospels. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 27. chapter 27 and we'll read verse 54 and then we'll back up and give you some more context you know um, Jesus Christ was publicly manifested to be the son of God by his resurrection but you know I don't necessarily think that too many people outside of this one man this centurion that we want to look at this morning I don't know that too many people at his death reached the conclusion that he was the Son of God. You know, there were some people that uh, believed he was the Son of God for three and a half years beforehand, but they got nervous, they fled away, John was the only one there. You know, Mary, I, you know, I think Mary probably still believed it. You know, Mary's a very special character. She pondered a lot of things in her heart, and, you know, Mary maybe still believed that he was the Son of God. But there was not much about what was happening on the cross that was making you think that this was God manifest in the flesh, right? Now, three days later, by his resurrection from the dead, it was, it was evident that he was the Son of God. But what we find here is this centurion who had been overseeing everything that was happening with Jesus Christ. He, he oversaw the scourging. He oversaw the mocking. He oversaw the blasphemy. He was the one who gave the orders to the men to drive the nails through his hands and through his feet. The centurion was, was overseeing everything that was happening on behalf of the Roman military under the direction of Pilate. And then Jesus <clears throat> gives up the ghost. It is finished. My, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. All those sayings of Christ on the cross. And then you have a, this powerful earthquake. The veil of the temple is rent in twain. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 54, uh, which by the way, let's just, actually let's just start reading here in verse 51. Uh, in verse 50, Jesus cried with a loud voice and he yielded up the ghost. <clears throat> and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent. And this very little interesting little tidbit here that... I don't have anything for you other than exactly what it says. The graves were opened, 
many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and they came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the Holy Spirit, uh, <clears throat> into the Holy City, and appeared unto many. Uh, very interesting. And a lot of people try to explain that. I have no idea what that means. How that works? I don't. I don't have a clue. But it was a powerful manifestation that this was not a regular person dying. We'll just put it like that, okay? This was not just some regular criminal or malefactor. There was something that was special about the death of this man. So not just the veil of the temple and not just the earthquake. I don't know necessarily if this centurion saw these people resurrected or not. Uh, But based on his assessment of everything that was happening, now the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things which were done they feared greatly saying truly this was the son of God everything that they saw happening their conclusion of that in the spirit primarily the centurion but there were some other people that were there with him too that reached this conclusion, truly, verily, verily, if you will, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, what was it about uh, uh, Jesus dying on the cross that made this man reach that conclusion? I mean, there wasn't much about the, the death of Jesus on the cross in a natural sense outside of the Holy Spirit that someone would have reached the conclusion that this is God. Because I mean, it doesn't matter what your, what your idea of false religion of, of a deity is. There is no, uh, no religion that's ever created an idea of a deity that has the ability to be killed, right? I mean, the, the purpose of being God is that no man can kill you. I mean, even even the pagan religions got that right. So how is it if this man is God, and he had verified, by the way, he was the one that was in charge of the the soldiers. He was the one who went and told them, go break their legs. He was the one who told them to do that. And they came back and said, he's already dead. He's already dead. He's already given up the ghost. So if, if I believe he's God... How can I reconcile in my mind that this man's God and he died, right? And nobody's idea of God is that, he, that they can die. But I'll tell you, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God testified to the soul of this centurion to reach the conclusion that didn't make a lot of sense from the natural events that he was witnessing. And he said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, I'm going to infer a little bit this morning. Take it for just that. Um, study is an Oberian. Study this out yourself. We don't necessarily know directly from the text of Scripture anything about this centurion prior to this statement. But the nature of a centurion, he was over a band of a hundred men, a Roman, a hundred legionaries, and that unit of the military was known as a century. Century, we're used to century equals 100, right? But that that group of 100 soldiers in the Roman military was known as a century. So the person who was over the century was a centurion, right? So he was commanding 100 soldiers, and they were the ones that were charged with carrying out everything that Pilate, as the 
as the Roman governor of Jerusalem. Everything Pilate told him to do, he was the supervisor. He was the man in charge. Now, we have the amazing testimony, praise God, in uh, particularly the Gospel of Luke of the amazing regeneration and conversion of the thief on the cross. We see that both uh, uh, one of the brother, I think it was Brother Paul Blair yesterday at Sulphur Springs talking about the offense of the cross and the shame of the cross. And, and you know, how bizarre is it that, uh, that people uh, that were enduring the same affliction, I mean, it's one thing for people that were not suffering and they, they weren't on the cross to be uh, passing by and mocking and making fun of Jesus on the cross. But the men who were enduring the exact same, I mean, they were suffering to death <laughs> and they were mocking and blaspheming Jesus Christ. You know, that is evidence of an unregenerate heart, right? They, they, they both, both of them, both those malefactors cast the same in their teeth as those people that blasphemed as they walked by. But then we have the beautiful testimony of the Gospel of Mark, right? That then there came a time that that thief on the cross, he rebuked the other one who did not have a change, and he said, why are you saying this about this man? He said, he's a just man. He's a righteous man. Why don't you fear God? You know, there's no fear of God uh, before the eyes of the wicked. Now, all of a sudden, this man fears God. And there wasn't anything. You want to talk about the, the conclusion that the centurion reached that this is the Son of God. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There wasn't anything about the natural uh, events of what was happening by Jesus on the cross that would make you think that he was a king, right? Mm -hmm. Kings don't get killed by the people. They're the ones who killed the, the insurrectionists, right? The, 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 there was a mocking charge uh, at the top of... Uh, the cross that said, what was his crime? It was, it was the king of the Jews. But there wasn't anything for that, uh, that thief on the cross to reach the conclusion that this man is a king, and there sure wasn't any reason to think that he's going into a kingdom. <laughs> I mean, uh, what kingdom could he possibly be going to? If he's the king of the Jews, the Jews have rejected him, right? I mean, it's one thing for him to think he's a king, but what kingdom could he possibly be going to that you can remember me in? There was something about the Holy Spirit that ministered to him and told him that, right? And praise God that the Holy Spirit gave us that beautiful testimony in the Gospel of Luke and Jesus Christ said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And obviously we know there wasn't a preacher there and there wasn't a tract and he didn't accept Jesus Christ as personal Savior. That is just immediate Holy Spirit regeneration and you just can't get around it. Praise God for that. But I believe there's another minimum conversion if not regeneration, we don't know enough to say definitively. But it is evident that if the Holy Spirit <clears throat> was inside the heart of that centurion, and, you know, maybe maybe he was uh, afraid of losing his job. Maybe he was, you know, that, that, uh, that Roman jailer in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, uh, he was afraid that those... Uh, those criminals had left and he was going to kill himself because if he messed up on his job, it wasn't just that he was going to die, his wife and his kids were going to get killed. So who knows, you know, maybe the centurion, maybe he was just uh, being a conscientious objector and, and you know, I, I'm not, I don't have enough boldness to, uh, to leave my position as a Roman centurion because uh, not only am I concerned about my future, but, you know, maybe my, my family and my kids might be killed if I 
if I accepted Jesus and, le- and left. So um, one of two things. Um, either he was a conscientious objector when he was telling these men to do these things to Jesus, or, or he had no spiritual conviction of that until the Spirit regenerated. Okay? And we don't know which one of those it is. You know, we, we have no, don't know if he was commanding these men to do these wicked, blasphemous things uh, with no conviction and simply being cut to the heart. Or maybe he was convicted about it, but he was just feeling the pressure uh, of his position and he was unwilling to, uh, to stand up like he should have in that moment. But at a minimum, whether it's regeneration or not, at a minimum, this man certainly exhibits conversion, okay? Uh, the thief on the cross, we have scriptural proof of regeneration, that he was born again. But the centurion, though, at a minimum, he certainly was brought to conversion, if not regeneration. And we know that only someone that has already been born again can make this statement, right? And certainly it would only be by the understanding of the Holy Spirit that anyone would reach the conclusion that this was the Son of God from what he had just witnessed, okay? So let's back up for a minute. Let's back up for a minute. So if this was the centurion, that was the supervisor, the leader of Pilate's group of... 100 legionaries that were his uh, primary Roman police force there in Jerusalem. I don't believe this centurion found out about Jesus on this day, right? I mean, there's a lot of people that knew about, Pilate knew about Jesus for a long period of time. Now, there were only a handful of times that, uh, that Jesus went into Jerusalem, went there for various feast days, um, and that's kind of one of the benchmarks, uh, him returning for Passover is one of the benchmarks that we have to identify about a three-and-a-half-year ministry. Um, but most of his time was spent up in Galilee, right, to the north. Um, but this centurion would not have heard for the first time about Jesus of Nazareth on this day, right? There was a lot of buzz, at a minimum, the seven days before, <laughs> You know, Jesus, uh, what's commonly known as Palm Sunday, which Jesus didn't come uh, into uh, Jerusalem when they laid the palms down and Hosanna as the Son of God uh, when he went into the, the Jerusalem on a colt in the foal of an ass. Well, that happened seven days previous to his crucifixion, which doesn't fall on a Sunday. But at a minimum, <laughs> there was a lot of buzz of Jesus of Nazareth during those seven days leading up to his arrest, right? I mean, it's pretty evident that Pilate and the centurion would have heard about all of the Jews being thrown out of the temple. They would have heard about him coming and telling the Jews, getting all worked up because he says, this temple, I'm going to destroy it. And in three days, I'm going to build it up again, right? All, these, all this conflict that was happening between uh, the Pharisees and Jesus in these seven days leading up 
there would have been a lot of buzz in the city of Jerusalem. And the centurion would have been aware of that. So now Jesus had last supper, go pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's actually not arrested by Romans. They go there with uh, swords and staves. I guess maybe, I don't know if these were just uh, chief priests and scribes and the Pharisees. I don't know if they had their own little religious police force or not, or if these were just the, the leaders who were so mad they picked up sword. <laughs> but it was, the, it was the Jewish leadership that went and arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I was reading back through that this morning, the, the powerful testimony they Jesus, uh, Judas came and, and kissed him to identify Jesus because he was a common man and uh, they had to identify which one he was. And then he said, we see Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And they all fell back. They all fell back uh, based on just the power of him saying, you know, that's been the name of God, Jehovah God, all the way back to the Old Testament. It's, it added he in our KJV English, but he said, I am. I am he, we see Jesus of Nazareth, and he said, I am. And his testimony of I am knocked these enemies back on their, on their back just because of his power of testimony to saying I am. And then he, then he went to uh, the various uh, high priests and Sanhedrin and those different trials, and then he goes to Pilate the first time, okay? And Pilate can't find anything wrong. And then he finds out, that he could be in Herod's jurisdiction, so he puts him back uh, to Herod, and Herod just mocks him and tries to, he, he doesn't really have much of a trial there, uh, but then he just ships him back to Pilate, okay? And then they arrive at Pilate the last time, and they go through it all again, and, and he reaches the conclusion, I can't find any fault in the man. He's innocent, he's innocent. And then he's trying to kind of get out of it. And he says, all right, well, uh, will you let me release him or would you rather have Barabbas, this insurrectionist, this murderer? And they say, give us Barabbas. And, and it's just amazing. The, of course, this, this shows just the wickedness of, of the unregenerate man's heart uh, that they said, let his blood be on us and on our children." They said that. And you know what? Unfortunately, the Lord blessed them to, uh, to reap what they sowed. It was their children. It was the next generation, 40 years later, that had to endure the destruction of Jerusalem. The Lord held them to their testimony. They said, Pilate said, I want to let him go. He's not, he's not worthy of death. And they said, crucify, crucify him. And he said, no, no, I can't crucify him. And they said, okay, put all the blame on us. Let his blood be on us and on our children. And then it was their children who had to endure the destruction of Jerusalem 40 years later in 70 AD. But after that, <clears throat> after that, uh, Pilate finally caves to the political pressure. Uh, it was a pretty good political day for Pilate. He made friends with Herod, who they had a lot of problems with previously. And he, he built a lot of currency up with the, with the Jews. Very successful political day for the politician Pilate. So he said, they said, crucify, crucify him. And then finally, he just succumbs to the pressure and wanting to uh, make political gains 
Matthew chapter 27. He released Barabbas unto them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now I want you to understand, the presumption would be that this centurion would have oversaw and, and, and witnessed each of those trials before Pilate, right? There's also a good chance he would have been the person that told the men to take him to Herod. But he would have heard everything that was happening in these two trials of Pilate. And even Pilate affirmed that this man is innocent, right? So, so the centurion would have heard all of these accounts that they were making up and you know and you get enough wicked people lying inevitably their stories are going to conflict and it doesn't make any sense and he would have heard all that you know Pilate reached the conclusion that this man is innocent but any person that wasn't just filled with vengeance and rage and hatred of Jesus if you just watch those events they would have reached the same conclusion you're saying that that he's worthy of death but all of your testimony is totally contradictory and it doesn't make any sense he, he reached the conclusion, the same conclusion that Pilate reached, that this man is innocent, right? So, but now he's under orders. <laughs> I mean, regardless of what he thought, right? Regardless of he's saying, man, there's no, I mean, you know, that bailiff, for example, you know, think about the bailiff that's sit in a, sit in a court case um, for months and maybe in his opinion, he, he's listened to all the proceedings and maybe there's not enough. Maybe it's all circumstantial. Maybe they, you know, maybe there's not enough, in his mind, enough uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt that this person should be convicted. But you know what? When that jury says he's guilty, it's the bailiff's responsibility to carry him out, right? I mean, it, it's not your your place as the bailiff. Now you can choose to resign if you want to, right? But I mean. The bailiff, regardless of he heard every, all the proceedings, and in his mind, he might disagree with that jury's decision. But you know what? I got a job to do, and I got to carry this man out, even if, in my opinion, he's not. The, the, the state did not prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. So in his mind, he heard all those proceedings, and he's like, man, there's not a shred of evidence against this guy. But you know what? His boss, Pilate, said, go scourge him. Go scourge him and take him to be crucified. And again, we don't know, we don't know the spiritual state of this man, if he did it at the beginning uh, with no conviction or if he's doing it against his conviction. But he was the man, this centurion, was the man who ordered his soldiers to scourge and to beat Jesus with that cat of nine tails. And I always, I didn't do it this week, but I usually try to have a... Um, document that describes the medical account from a medical doctor of the physical suffering that Jesus endured. And it's just, it's just so hard for us to fathom in our American culture with First Amendment rights for us to understand the kind of brutality and suffering that Jesus would have physically endured even prior to being hung on the cross. They beat him within an inch of his life with that cat of nine tails. The centurion was the one who not just ordered it, but commanded them to keep scourging him. He was the one that was overseeing as they, as they beat him. And then they, these soldiers, 
began to blaspheme. They put on a scarlet robe, which was supposed to be the robe of a king. And they gave him a reed, mocking that instead of a, a scepter, they gave him a mocking reed. If you're the king, this is your, your scepter. And then they put a crown of thorns on his head. Now, I don't necessarily think the centurion told him to do all that, but he watched it. And you know what? Those men were under his authority. And at any moment, now that ultimately they, they had to crucify him, but there wasn't any reason they had to do any of that. You understand that? They were commanded to scourge. They were commanded to crucify, but this is just the wickedness of the soldiers that were blaspheming and mocking him. There wasn't any order from Pilate for this to happen. And that centurion said, could have said, nope, we're not doing that. Let's go ahead and take him to crucifixion. But you know what? He didn't do that. He didn't do that. He sat on his hands. And he allowed those soldiers to mock him, to blaspheme him, and to smite him on his face, to pluck his beard. He was the one who oversaw all that. And then he was the one, the centurion was the one, who gave the command for those soldiers to drive the nails through the hands and the feet of Jesus. He was the one who watched it. Now again, this is all assumptions here, but I just don't personally believe, especially in the magnitude of this moment, that a child of God could have watched, and a regenerated child of God at that moment could have watched, not just watched, but been the person responsible. If he, if he believed in that moment that that was the Son of God, I can't see how a child of God could have not just commanded but suffered them to drive nails through his hands and through his feet. So it's my assumption, and it's just that, that prior to him being on the cross, this man was unregenerate. Because I just can't reconcile in my mind how a child of God could have commanded that. He was the one that commanded those soldiers to drive the nails through his hands and through his feet. And he's watching all these events. And he's close enough, <clears throat> he's close enough to hear the seven sayings of Christ on the cross. One of the most astounding <clears throat> of those statements. Okay, so he's, he's wrongly convicted. I'm sure he is amazed by the fact that he's being slandered, but he's not saying anything, right? He's led, led as, a, as a lamb before his, his uh, lamb to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. I mean, it's astounding that all this, this slander is happening, but he didn't say anything. That, that would have been marveling to, to the centurion. And then he carries the, carries the cross up the, uh, up the hill, and he is, he is being, in, even in the centurion's mind, he is being unjustly killed because there's no evidence to support his cap, the capital punishment. And one of the first things, you can look at the different chronologies uh, about you know, which one may have came first, but one of the first things as the centurion is within earshot that he hears, and you know what? I've always believed that this applies to the thief on the cross, but 
I believe, at least in my personal opinion, I believe it also applies to the centurion too, that in, in spite of all that they did to Jesus, one of the first things that that centurion heard Jesus say was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And it's just my personal opinion and it's just that because people are born again by the voice of the Son of God. And it's my opinion that when Jesus said that by the voice of the Son of God, that that's when the thief on the cross was regenerated. And it wouldn't surprise me one bit. You know, I don't have any scripture to back it up. But it wouldn't surprise me one bit if it was that same voice and statement of the Son of God of when that centurion was regenerated. Father, forgive them because they know not what they... This centurion, this child of God, that I am, I am paying my, uh, my blood for his sins. He doesn't understand what he's doing. He doesn't understand what he's, he's commanding. There's going to come a time where he understands it just a couple hours later, but he doesn't understand at this moment that he is commanding his men to drive the, the, the nails to the hands and the feet of the Son of God. And it's my opinion that there's a good possibility that that moment, the voice of the Son of God, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, that that is when the centurion was regenerated. Because I, don't, I, don't, I can't reconcile that he did understand what he was doing <laughs> previous to that. But what an impactful statement, right? I mean, anyone would look at that, and anyone that has seen the proceedings, they would say, man, this is so unfair, right? And then for that man that's in the brutal suffering of the cross to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's a powerful statement, right? And then various statements on the cross. You know, I thirst. Uh, um, he tells John to take care of his mother, uh, Behold thy son. And then uh, tells John, Behold thy mother. Then you get a little bit later on, and he says, My God, it says in the, in the Greek, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Right? And then he says, It is finished. And then he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then he gave up his life, and he, and he yielded up the ghost, Right? And also the centurion had seen that all of a sudden, in the brightest part of the day, they put him on the cross at 9 o'clock, in the brightest part of the day from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., all of a sudden it's totally dark. That's abnormal, right? That doesn't happen. <laughs> there may be clouds, but the sun doesn't stop shining in the brightest part of the day. And he's just letting all this sink in, right? And then, again, he's within earshot to be able to hear everything that, that uh, Jesus is saying on the cross. And then he hears him say, cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he hears him cry out, it is finished. And then he says, hears him say, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And as soon as he says that, there is a massive earthquake. As soon as, now I don't, I don't know if he had vantage point to the temple, but at that moment, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And I think that there was some commotion over at the temple. <laughs> okay? I don't know if he had a vantage point, but there was significant commotion over at the temple. And then, I don't know how quickly it happened, 
But there were, there were dead bodies resurrected. I don't know if he saw them before he made this statement. But then his conclusion for everything that he was witnessing, and I, I feel like that for the most part, everyone else that had previously believed that Jesus was the Son of God, now is when they're starting to doubt it, right? I mean, we believe. Kind of like those people on the road to Mace a couple days later. We thought he was the one that would redeem Israel. You know, even Mary, his own mother, there had to be something that crept in his mind. We thought he was God, but he just died, right? I mean, I know he told us he was going to, but, but I mean, how could God die? So everyone in that scenario, in a natural sense, outside of the power of the Holy Spirit, would have said, even if we hoped he was the Son of God before, now that that's creeping into my mind, right? But the centurion's response was the opposite. See that? And that's just the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God testified to him that these are evidences that this is truly, this is not just a regular, you know, the centurion, you know, if he's a centurion, he's not a first-year person in the, in the Roman army. He's been doing this a long time. He has seen a lot of people die. Which, by the way, I missed the point that he was the one who told those soldiers to go and break the legs of the people on the cross. And when they got to him, they said, he's already. And, you know, again, this is me filling in some gaps. But when they got to him and they realized he was already dead, I doubt they would have just done this without asking their supervisor, hey, it looks like he's already dead. Okay, well, check. What do you want me to do? Put the spirit aside? Yeah, go ahead and do that. Put the spirit aside. He saw all that. And he was the one, let's look at the other verse that, uh, this is in Mark 15, <clears throat> Mark 15. This is the other verse that addresses the centurion along with Luke. We're going to get to Luke in just a minute. <clears throat> Mark 15, <coughs> 44 to 45. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead, calling unto him the centurion, and he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And he knew it of the centurion, and he gave the body to Joseph. How did he know when Jesus died? Because the centurion heard him say, into thy father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, right? The centurion told Pilate that. Now let's look at Luke's account of the centurion. You know, I, I, lo I love the, uh, the way that the Lord inspired the gospels and meshes them all together. Uh, without the Gospel of Luke, we would have no scriptural verification of the beautiful testimony of the sovereignty of God and immediate Holy Spirit regeneration of the thief on the cross. It's only that that statement, those interactions between Jesus and that thief on the cross are only recorded in Luke's Gospel. And there's a reference to what the centurion said. Um, in Matthew's gospel. But just in case there's any doubt of like, maybe this was just, you know, the Lord can, <laughs> Lord can 
speak through the mouth of a donkey if he wants to, right? Mm-hmm. And even the uh, even the devils confess that Jesus is the Son of God. So just in case you would discount uh, the uh, the testimony of Matthew, Luke's gospel also gives us beyond a shadow of a doubt the certification, just like it did with the conversion of the thief on the cross. Luke's gospel gives us the shadow of a doubt, at a minimum the conversion, and in my opinion the regeneration of this centurion. <clears throat> Luke chapter 24, and again, he saw all these different things, and this is right after, there's some other things that are highlighted in the other gospels, but in verse 46, Jesus has cried with a loud voice, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. He glorified God. And not only was this as a son of God, but I believed just in, you know, it's, again, this is my assumption, take it for just that. But, you know, I think just as a logical man who believed in law, he was in the military, right, who believed in law, even as an unregenerate man, he could see that there was no proof that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, before Pilate, was worthy of death. Even as an unregenerate man, thinking logically, there is no proof to substantiate a capital punishment. But you know what? Even though he could think through that logically, as possibly an unregenerate man, he reached that conclusion in the unregenerate state, but now all of a sudden it has a great greater impact and power now that the Holy Spirit resides inside of him, right? And he said, certainly this is a righteous man. You know, you'd have to be righteous to be unjustly condemned, be suffered and tortured and nails through your hands and feet, and the first thing you say is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, right? I think all this was starting to click. All this was coming back to him. And first of all, he glorified God. He glorified God and saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Truly this was the Son of God. And we don't know anything else about this centurion. <clears throat> don't know anything else about him. Our hope would be that he gave up his position as a centurion and join the church. And he, again, you just never know. Never know. Maybe that maybe that centurion was in, in earshot on the day of Pentecost. And maybe he maybe he gave up his profession and joined the church. We sure hope he did. But he was an amazing testimony of the power of the Holy Spirit, of conversion, that through the Spirit revealing that to him, he reached the conclusion that truly this was the Son of God. And I want to tell you, that is the purpose. Other, pe- other people could certainly reach that conclusion at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but he reached that conclusion at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus was resurrected, declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. And now it's by our making that same confession of that centurion of how we press into the kingdom. We confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We submit to believers' baptism, which is a picture of his death, burial, and resurrection, right? That's the purpose of baptism. It's for us to signify our belief in his resurrection. And the reason why you believe in that resurrection is by confessing 
that he is the Son of God, you see? And that centurion made that comment, and I sure hope he came and found those disciples and said, told them the same thing, right? I believe that he's the Son of God. And, and if he was baptized, boy, I can only imagine the answer of a good conscience that he received, right? You think about Paul and all that guilt that he carried around. Boy, can you imagine the guilt that that centurion had, right? But what the, what the blessing of baptism for that centurion that it put away that conviction and that guilt and that he had the answer of a good conscience toward God. We certainly hope that that was the case. Scripture is silent on that. But that's our testimony as well, that because of not just the crucifixion but the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our testimony is that truly he was a righteous man. And by his righteousness, we've received his imputed righteousness. Praise God for that. But by his death and burial and resurrection, truly this was the Son of God. That's our testimony in the church today as well, that we have upheld ever since those original days of the kingdom of God and the original Baptist church. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.